After 13 weeks of going through Luke's prologue, going through the first 130 plus verses, we now enter the real action of the story, the ministry of John the Baptist, the ministry of Jesus. And I'd like to begin by reading the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Traconitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley should be filled and every mountain and hill should be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. Be content with your wages. And so it begins. 130 plus verses to set up, to validate, to prepare us for the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. From the last time that we studied this book at the end of chapter 2, over 20 years have passed. We just jump from Jesus at age 12 all the way till about 29 A.D., where we find not John beginning his ministry, but John's ministry in full force. It's ongoing. We show up, he's already doing things. The action is already taking place when we arrive on the scene. And here we should expect to see the one who we already saw the prophecies would be the one who would go before the Lord, the one who would be great, the one who would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That is exactly what we find. Now we'll look at this passage in in two sections. John's ministry of repentance and John's message of repentance. The text first introduces us with the time, the setting, the date. 
tells us what John was mainly about, tells us how he fulfilled scripture, gives us a, a paradigm in which to understand him, and then we zoom in even closer as we watch individual groups come in speaking to him as he gives them particular counsel, the, the very words he's saying. So we get the, the big picture. Who is John? What is he about? What is his function? What is he fulfilling? And then specifically, zooming in even closer, his, his actual message. So let's dive into John's ministry of repentance. And in the first two verses, Luke, again, and we see again and again and again in this book, the, the attention to historical detail. Um, not that it's necessarily worth your time, but if you ever were to read the non-canonical Gospels, one of the things that would strike you is their absence of these type of details, the absence of people's names, the absence of dates and city locations. It's much more there was a man, and he came across a man, and he said to a man. And then you read things like Luke, and you, you don't make this stuff up. You don't bluff with this. This is the hallmark of someone who has done research. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the reason of Eturia, and Draconis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Luke's done his details. He, and what, one of the things he wants us to understand, and again, we've made this point again and again and again, Christianity is not, first and foremost, a philosophy. It's not a way of life, first and foremost. It's not a, a worldview or a value system. His, Christianity hangs or falls absolutely on the historicity of particular historical events. You get that? Paul says flat out, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Throw, the, throw this away. Let's just go have a good time while it lasts. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we of all men are the most to be pitied. And there are other religions that can potentially exist as a philosophy, a way of life. Christianity is not one of them. And we are staking our eternal salvation. We are staking our lives upon the realities of who Jesus Christ was and what he did starting now in 29 A.D. And Luke wants to link this narrative to a historical reality. And again, in, in the time when he wrote this, when Theophilus was alive, this also invites verification. He's writing to Theophilus. Hey, I've done careful research, he said in the first four verses. And I want you to be certain. He's inviting verification. Now, it's harder for us, 2,000 years plus, to verify. But certainly in the first instance, Luke is inviting Theophilus and any other reader to verify to check these events. And again, that's the hallmark of accuracy. These aren't fables. These aren't legends. This is a historical narrative. And so moving from the historical context, it ends with the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, this introduction not only gives us a historical context, but it, it echoes the words of former prophets. Remember, again, that Luke, one of his intentions is to give us the, the credentials to show the, the historical, biblical, prophetic pedigree of the tradition that John and Jesus stand in. So, so listen to a very similar introduction to Jeremiah's prophetic book. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in 
Ananoth in the land of Ben-Hamin, the word, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Amnon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year. Similar pattern. We're naming the officials, we're naming the kings, we're naming the high priest, and then that key phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And so Luke is, is enacting that same sort of formula. The way the, the prophets of old, their books began of their ministry, you got the date, you got the key figures, and then you get the word of the Lord came to. And that pattern is exactly followed here. Make no mistake, Luke is saying John the Baptist is a prophet on a par with or greater than, say, Jeremiah. He has all the credentials, he has all the pedigree, he has the supernatural birth. And notice also the key that John's ministry was not begun by his own impetus. Last time we saw John, he secluded himself out in the wilderness, isolating himself until it was time. And now, God takes the initiative. God decides when when John will begin his ministry. God's word comes to him, and by implication, thus the words that we are going to hear John the Baptist speak later in this passage are God's words. Notice the connection. The plug goes all the way back to the wall. God's word came to John, and then John went out and he spoke words. Implication, the words John spoke were God's words. His ministry was God's given ministry. He did not take it upon himself. It was given to him. So we've got the historical context. Next, let's move on to the prophetic context. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall be made level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What Luke does in, in these short verses is he tells us the fundamental ministry that John was about, then he connects it as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So in effect, what he's saying is here is what John was about. Here is what his ministry was comprised of. And here is the Old Testament antecedent passages which it fulfills. Here is, here is why we should understand this is right. This is fitting. This is good that John did this. We should have expected something like this. So let's look at this. John's baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John's baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And as you read through all the Gospels, one thing becomes clear, the centrality of John's message, the singularity of his message. John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So we've got to start by defining our terms. What is meant by the word repentance? This is worth discussing because there can be some disagreement over this. But I think in John's context, it becomes clear. Repentance, and here are the blanks, and I'm using a definition given by Wayne Grudem, um, which, which I found helpful, and you could look up word dictionaries. But the biblical usage of the word is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a commitment to forsake it. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a commitment to forsake it. 
That's what John is calling them to do. We see that clearly in the second half of the passage where he links repentance with the type of actions and the type of things he expects to see among those who are repentant. He is, in other words, going to the Israelites. He's going all through the Jordan in the wilderness, and he's proclaiming and calling people out. And what he's basically, in essence, saying is, you all, to Israel, and ultimately we see to the whole world, you all need to repent. You all, by implication, therefore, are sinful. Not just sinful, but committed to sin. You love your sin. And you need to come out and be symbolically cleansed. We're baptized, simply means to dip dunk or immerse and for john's purposes it's a picture of cleansing and this is a humbling thing for israelites because israelites believed they were already clean we're going to see a bit later some of them thought just by virtue of the fact that they are abraham's children and if not that they, they bore the mark of the covenant they were circumcised and they participated in the temple worship system and john is calling on these religious people these chosen people these people who already had revelation from God, who already had a legitimate approach to God through the temple worship system, he was calling on them to recognize their brokenness, to recognize their sinfulness, to recognize that many of them in their hearts were actually serving and loving something other than God. Their allegiance was with something other than God and to come forward, renounce their sin, and be publicly shown to be sinful and of need of cleansing. This is a hard message for Israel to hear. It's a hard message for us to hear. And yet, in God's grace, through his, his uh, grace and the work of his spirit, thousands were coming out to John in all of, all of the region. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Now, baptism in a Christian form takes on deeper and fuller meaning after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And there is some distinction in the scripture between John's baptism, which was baptism of repentance, and the New Testament baptism after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But John's call to people is a call to repentance, a call to recognize first and foremost their need of cleansing not, not that they're good people who have a blemish, but a fundamental head-to-toe cleansing from sin. Second point from this, and this is, I think, the, the, one of the most significant points in the passage for us to wrap our heads around, and potentially one of the most um, controversial. Repentance from sin is essential for salvation. Repentance from sin is essential for salvation. I want you to think about it from Luke's context. What was John's fundamental function in the history of salvation. What, what did we hear? He would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. He would turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. So here's the question to ask. When God is sending his son to his people, what message does God send ahead of time as the advanced team, as it were, to prepare those people to receive his son? Is it a message, I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life? Is it a message of, I can meet your needs? The message God sends here in preparation for, for his people to receive his son by faith, the preparation for that is repentance. Preparation for that is repentance. And as we read the Gospels, especially in John, what we see is it's really only from those who received John's baptism, from that circle of people that Jesus' followers come from. Those, in other words, who heard and responded to John the Baptist in faith are the very ones who respond to Jesus Christ in faith. 
This is important because this is, this is something that there can be some debate on in the, in the church in the last 50, 60 years or so. Such voices as Ryrie, MacArthur, Kevin DeYoung have, have written on the subject, and there's been some confusion in the church. The, the thought being, perhaps, that maybe in, in demanding that repentance be a condition for salvation, we're making things harder than we need to, or perhaps we're even in danger of, of preaching a work's salvation. Now, I want to briefly address um, that. First off, um, and I'm just going to deal with three objections to the notion that repentance is essential for salvation. I think in, in, in Luke's case here, we'll see it's, it's abundantly clear. The first objection is this, that the Greek word for repentance literally just means to afterward think. It's just meta, after, um, nuo, to think. To think afterwards, to, to think differently, to change your mind after the fact. And so the question is, well, well couldn't it just mean... In, in when, the, when repentance is given as a condition for salvation, that what's being called upon is for people to change their mind about who Jesus was. You, you didn't think Jesus was God, now you do. You didn't think he was a trustworthy Savior before, now you do. The, the problem is, um, there's, there's a fallacy of thinking there. Words are more than the sum of their parts. Words get developed in usage. And so, yeah, at its root meaning, metaneo means to think afterwardly or think differently. But as you study it through the scripture, and especially in the New Testament, it takes on a consistent meaning of a particular type of afterthought, an afterthought in reference to sin. Let me give you an example of how this can work in English. If any of you have the King James Bible, and you were to turn to the final chapters of John, you would read that when John and Peter raced to the, um, to the tomb, John prevented Peter. And you'd be confused. <laughs> Because originally, and in its parts meaning prevent, means simply to pre-ventilate, to go ahead of. That's all it means. In its root etymological structure, prevent means to go ahead. And when the time when the King James was written, that's all it meant. And so it just simply meant that John went ahead of Peter. The problem is the word has consistently been used more often over and over to, to go ahead for a certain type of reason. To get ahead of someone so as to stop them. That's how it's become in usage used. So now prevent means to stop somebody. And it would be wrong and fallacious to say, no, 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 it just means to go ahead of somebody. It's not what it means anymore. In the same way, metanoeo, I don't think I even said that right, um, at its root is the notion of changing thought or afterthought, but consistently in Scripture we see again and again and again and again it is applied to a very specific type of afterthought. Afterthought in regards to sin. I used to think this was worth living for. I used to think that the praise of people or money or pleasure was the greatest value in my life. I thought it was what it was worth selling everything else for. And now I've, I've realized this is death. This is slavery. And I think differently and I renounce it. And I don't, I don't want to serve it anymore. That, that's, that's repentance. The second argument sometimes challenged against this notion is that it, aren't we, by demanding repentance and faith, as opposed to just faith, aren't we in danger of preaching a, a works gospel? I think this passage here makes it clear that that is not the case. Look at verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, John the Baptist distinguishes clearly between the act of repentance as the inward change of the will and the mind and the accompanying fruit which are distinct from it he, he, there's repentance and then there's the fruit or the works of repentance and they're separate things 
Repentance speaks to the condition, the state of the will and the mind. It is not a work. John here makes it clear it's not a work. Any more than faith is a work. Repentance isn't doing things. Repentance is, is an inward shift of thought and allegiance and desire and feelings towards things. And third, third objection is, well, true, John the Baptist preached a call to repentance, but, but John the Baptist also didn't preach what we would understand as the full gospel because Jesus had not yet died and rose again. There was no message in John's call of believe in a crucified Messiah. The, the closest John gets, in fact, is to point out Jesus and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the other side of the cross, it can be argued, the message of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and belief in him is a different or adjusted message, and that message, the argument goes, doesn't contain a call to repentance. Well, I, I think that can be shown to be clearly unbiblical. Just jump to the end of Luke's gospel. Go to chapter 24. Luke, just like Matthew, has a great commissioning passage. And so now in Luke 24, we are on the other side of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice how Luke, the continuity that Luke shows, yes, there is discontinuity between the message of John the Baptist and the first century apostles. There's also continuity. For instance, John doesn't mention the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. The apostles do. But one of the things that stays continuous, I think you'll see. Let's pick it up in verse 44. This is Jesus appearing to his disciples after the resurrection. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Get that. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. Beginning with Jerusalem, you are my witnesses to these things. The very first sermon in Acts chapter 2, which of course Luke wrote, when the men cry out from the heart to Peter, what must we do to be saved? What's his message? He calls on them to repent. Or even more notably, jump, jump up to Acts 26. You want to see the continuity that Luke makes between the message of John the Baptist and the first century apostles. Paul is standing before King Agrippa, giving an account of his ministry, giving an account of his message. Pick it up in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. What, Paul? What did you preach? What was the summary of your message? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to Luke 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance? The apostle Paul was quite comfortable adopting the language, the challenge, the proclamation of John the Baptist. 
There is absolute continuity on this point. The very first opening call of the one who would come before the Messiah is a call to repentance. The Great Commission in Luke's Gospel is a call to repentance. The Apostle Paul is quoting John the Baptist. Let's, let's look to Jesus briefly. Let's just look briefly to Jesus. Turn to John, Luke 13. Turn to Luke 13. In Luke 13, they've come to Jesus and they're confused. Some calamity has fallen upon some of the Jews. Some of their blood was sacrificed under Pilate. Verse 2, he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they are worse offenders than those who lived in Jerusalem? No, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will also perish. Turn over a page to Luke 15. The parable of the lost sheep. After telling the parable about how the shepherd goes and finds the lost sheep and he rejoices more over the one sheep he lost and found than over the 99 who were not lost, he says this in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have need of no repentance. I could show you many more examples in Luke and the other Gospels, but I want you to see the message. There's a continuity. There's a consistency. Even if you remember our study of Zechariah, when God wants to come and comfort his people, return to the land, what was the opening salvo? What was his opening message? Return to me and I'll return to you. It was a call to repentance. One cannot be at peace with God. And the gospel is the promise of peace with God while inwardly one still is fighting him. You cannot claim to in any realistic way be at peace with God while inwardly you are remain his enemy because you love what he hates. You hate what he loves. Turn, turn to John 3 real quickly. I, I, I know I'm making a significant point here, but I, I, cannot, I cannot emphasize how important it is for us to think rightly about this. The reason why this is so significant is if we don't emphasize and highlight the need and the gospel call for repentance, we will be tempted to think that all that's necessary is, is, is a decision. Make a decision for Christ. All that's necessary is to overcome some, un, some, some incredulity as if the gospel were simply the chief hindrance to the gospel were, were mental incredulity. If we could just make a credible case, if we could just explain it clearly enough, then they'd believe What the Bible shows again and again and again is what stops people from coming to faith in Jesus? They love their sin. First and foremost, the fundamental hindrance, what stops people from coming to Christ savingly is they love their sin, which is why before you can turn to Jesus, you must turn from something. And and, and coming to Jesus in faith is is one act of turning from your sin to Jesus. Look, Look at John. We'll pick it up in 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then we get the conclusion. This is the judgment, he says. This is the conclusion. What do we make of all this? Light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Why did people love the darkness rather than the light? Why didn't people love Jesus? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Get that. Everyone. Not most people, not some people. Everyone who does evil things hates the light. Does not come to the light lest their works should be exposed. And this is the message of Jesus. It's not as though the Pharisees had a legitimate misunderstanding. They were confused. They just needed more information. No, again and again and again, Jesus rails against them because it's they love their position. They love their pride. They love the praise of men. They love their money more than they love God. The Pharisees weren't blocked and challenged for coming to Jesus because they simply legitimately misunderstood passages. They loved their sin. And that's what stopped them from coming. Paul says, make no mistake, we are a slave to whoever we present ourselves to serve. And all of us are born slaves to sin. We cannot have two masters. And this doesn't mean that the gospel is calling for sinlessness. Of course not. But it is calling for a desire to be freed from sin. And in effect, the gospel is saying, would, would you like would you, would you like?" Do they have the power to resist sin? Would you, would you like to be freed from its tyranny? Would you, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because God, God will free you. He'll free you and give you the power in his spirit so that you can walk by faith. He'll, he'll give you the ability to put to death the flesh. And I, I, God's saying, I know, I know you can't do it on your own, but do you want to be free? And the danger is we preach a gospel that says, do you want to be freed from the penalty of sin, hell? Would you like to be free from the the, uh, the presence of sin. Would you like to go to heaven and be sinless? And we leave out in the middle of it. Would you like to be freed from its power? And the danger is you wind up with people like me. As some of you know, um, before the Lord got a hold of me, um, I, uh, I strayed a fair bit. But I grew up in a Christian home. I, I cannot remember, as far back as I reach, I cannot remember learning the, the content of the gospel message. Orthodox gospel message. My mom won a tug of war with my dad, um, and she got me enrolled in a, in a Christian school, a small Christian school, an elementary school. I can't remember learning it. As far back as I go, the knowledge that I was a sinner, that Jesus came, Son of God, Son of Man, fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross as a substitute for my sins, that he was raised to life on the third day. And if I believe in him, I could be saved. And I can remember as a child praying that prayer. And then somewhere in my teens... The Lord, and I, and I really view it as his mercy now, although I don't know if my parents viewed it that way at the time. Um, the Lord in his mercy made it evident where my loyalty lied, who was my master, to whom was I a slave, righteousness or sin. And I, the summer, in the, actually right about now, the winter of 1995, I dropped out of high school um, because I was in a heavy metal band and who needed school. And I spent the next four or five years um, drinking a lot of alcohol, sleeping on a lot of couches, and living like a profligate. And yet, I can remember clear as day, being outside of a, a party at the University of New Hampshire, where I, was, I drank so much I was vomiting, and I had a cross on that my sister had given me. And I remember being outside and, and someone looking at me and saying, are you a Christian? 
And I said, yeah, just a bad one. And I had in my theology a category for that. You know, I was a Christian. I wasn't a very good one. But, I mean, after all, I'd asked Jesus into my heart. I'd prayed the prayer. I'd walked the aisle. And the Lord in his mercy began to show me through conviction of sin and fear of judgment that there can't really be any significant or meaningful separation between what we believe and what we do. I've said this over and over over many years. There can't be any significant separation for long between what we believe and what we do. And I've, I've given this example before. Eve is confronted in Genesis 3 with, with two interpretations of this fruit. There's what God says about the fruit, and there's what the snake says about the fruit. God says you'll die. The snake says you won't die. God says it's not good for you. The snake says it'll make you like God. And the challenge is who is Eve going to believe? And we know exactly who Eve believed, because we know what she did, right? John makes that same link here. He's challenging the validity of repentance when it doesn't result in a change in life. And I'd created a system where I believe, thought I believed this, and I was living my life for this. And, and I firmly believe that if I would have died, then I would have gone straight to hell. Because this, this, this point wasn't made clear to me. So I think it matters. I think it's, I think it's significant. I know this can be a tough issue. If this is something you're confused on, if this is something you're, you, you may have heard other positions on, I'll be happy to talk to you. The elders in 2012 published this document. There's about 30 or 40 copies of it out in the foyer. Um, it's basically just a reprinting of something Wayne Grudem wrote that we thought was well done, um, stating our position on the issue. Gary Crandall has preached on this topic. I've preached on this topic, and I'll be happy to work with you through this. But I do think it's that important. I do think it's worth taking this much time in our service. Let me, let me read a quote for you, helping to convey the significance of, of repentance as a, as a necessary component in saving faith. This is from Walter Chantry's book, the, Today's Gospel. Our ears have grown accustomed to hearing men told to, quote, accept Jesus as your personal Savior, a form of words which is not found in Scripture. It has become an empty phrase. These may be precious words to the Christian, personal Savior, but they are more and more wholly inadequate to instruct a sinner in the way of eternal life. They wholly ignore an essential element of the gospel, namely repentance. That necessary ingredient of gospel preaching is swiftly fading from evangelical pulpits, though the New Testament is filled with it. It's filled with it. Now, I want you to, I want you to think this through. I guess we won't be reading that quote today. Um, <laughs> want you, oh, thank you, Dave. Dave to the rescue. He wants me to read it. We will read it. Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Remember, we talked about the Reformation and the gospel. The very first of the 95 theses, I'm going to read. Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, in saying repent, intended the whole life of his believers on earth should be a constant practice of repentance. The very first of the 95 theses. And, and think of the significance of this is the message God sends to religious people. This is the message God sends to his people who've received his word and have a temple and are offering sacrifices. I'm going to read a quote from another commentator. John's calling was to get people ready, to help them to be prepared for the coming of Christ. But how are they supposed to get ready? What does it mean to prepare the way of the Lord or to make his path straight? According to John the Baptist, it means turning away from sin. 
Our lives are rocky and crooked like the wilderness of Israel. Mountains of pride need to be broken down. Valleys of self-pity need to be raised so that God can come in. Christ the King finds easy entrance to any heart with sorrow for sin. Put it another way. Repentance is the on-ramp to salvation. If we want God to save us, we need to be willing to turn away from our sin. John needed to say this because most people of his day were looking for the wrong kind of Savior. In those days, many Israelites were praying for the Messiah, but they were thinking primarily in political terms. They wanted someone to deal with Caesar and Herod and Pilate and the rest of the Roman rulers. But God wanted to address their spiritual condition. He wanted to deal with their sin. So he sent John to help them get ready. This is what we always need, the spiritual preparation of the heart. We may want God to do many great things for us, but the first thing we need is to repent. We need to get ready for what God wants to do in our lives and turn from sin. This this is a crucial point. Um, We probably will not get done with the outline this morning, and that's fine. I'll go a little further. Let's just, repentance is essential for salvation. Let's just look at John's ministries of fulfillment of Isaiah 40. We'll try to finish that in the next 10 minutes. Um, and that's the very next thing. We're told the summary of John's ministry. John's ministry is a ministry of repentance, a ministry of calling Israelites, calling religious people to repentance, calling them to come out publicly and identify themselves as in desperate need of cleansing. And in doing so, that was how he would prepare them for the Messiah. And John tells us, and he quotes this extensively. I mean, Luke, sorry, I keep saying John. Luke. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40. So if you could leave your finger here in Luke and turn to Isaiah. I'd like to read the Isaiah passage. Isaiah chapter 40. This gives us a better and a fuller understanding, I think, of who John was and what his ministry is about and, and putting this together. And this can seem off to us because we, we hear the word repentance and a call to repentance and we think of something harsh, we think of something uncomfortable, we think of something painful. And there's some truth to that. But I think again and again and again, repentance is the pathway to peace. After Nineveh repents, God spares them. What joy. Isaiah 40 begins, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough place is a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I want you to factor in this whole passage because John introduces it by saying I've got wonderful comforting words for Israel good news for Israel tell them that her war with God is over tell her that her iniquity is pardoned tell her that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins then John the Baptist arrives and, and, and the context is this, what he's saying. And, and what God is saying to you and to me, if you're his enemy today, make, it, make no mistake, you are either his child or his enemy. 
There is no middle position. You're, you're a son of one of two people in John 8. You're a son of God or you're a son of the devil. God is saying, you don't have to be enemies. We don't have to be at odds. We don't have to fight. You don't have to be punished. Lay down your arms. I'll forgive you. Renounce your warfare. Change teams. Change allegiances. Free pardon. That's good news. That is comforting news. And that's the context of John the Baptist's ministry. The man who came calling on people to repent was doing so because there is no cost. If, if, if you will renounce your sin, if you will stop making it God and are willing to make God God, if you, if you do desire, just desire to follow and obey, God will give you the power, the strength, the forgiveness, his spirit, everything. Comfort. This is a message of comfort. My people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so John comes, and this is the picture of making ready a way for Jesus Christ. The picture is that back then when kings would go and visit There'd be advanced teams, but the same thing happens now. If, if President Obama is going somewhere, the Secret Service will arrive days or weeks earlier to prepare the way of his coming. Now, in our context, it's primarily his safety. In, in the context of the ancient Near East, it had as much to do with making sure the road didn't have big potholes and that there weren't brigands and thieves. They'd go and prepare the way so that when the king had a two- or three-day travel, it was smooth, it was uneventful. And they'd fill in the low spots, and they'd knock down the high spots. We, we do that now when we build our highways. You see us dig into the sides of hills if the grade is too steep. And we build bridges to flatten out the low spots, right? What's the point? To prepare for travel. Jesus is coming. And how does God choose to prepare his people for his coming? He knows that only a people who are aware of their sinfulness, only a people who are crying out for cleansing are going to be interested in a Messiah who delivers not first and foremost from the political enemies, but from sin. Do you see the connection? The Jews of Jesus' day were looking for a Messiah who would smash the Romans, who would liberate them from their oppression. And Jesus came to liberate them from the slavery to sin. And God prepares his people for this type of Messiah by calling on them be aware of your sinfulness. Be aware of your need of forgiveness. Be aware of your need for cleansing. Come and admit, I need cleansing. I'm dirty. I'm, I'm, I'm broken through and through. These are the type of people that will receive Jesus. In the gospel, they are precisely the type of people who receive Jesus. Point one, John's ministry fulfilled Isaiah 43 through 5 because he prepared the way for Jesus. He prepared the way for Jesus. Do you understand how that works? That's always the message. The danger is if we don't come to God first and foremost for cleansing, we'll come to him as the magic genie. We'll come to him as a, as a slot machine. I'll come to God for a better marriage. Sure, I'll come to God for better health. I'll come to God for... We need to come first and foremost for forgiveness. We need to come first and foremost for salvation, reconciliation, cleansing. We need to come repentant. Or to flip it backwards, imagine the ridiculousness of somebody who says, yes, I love my sin, and everything your son died for, I delight in. But if you're offering to get me out of hell, I'll take it, sure. I accept. I'll take that. 
Imagine the ridiculousness of such a person. Oh, your son's righteousness? I find it abhorrent. It repels me. Everything he stands for and his commands, I find unable to bear and ridiculous. I'm going to do what I want, please. But yes, I will take pardon from sin and freedom from hell if you're offering it. How'd that work out for the rich young ruler? How'd that work out for the thousands in the crowds that Jesus turned away? No, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Such a notion that we can be God's enemies and claim to have peace with him. He prepared the way for Jesus. Point two, he prepared all flesh for the salvation of God. Don't miss that last point. John's ministry was first and foremost to Israel, but there's a sense in which his message of repentance is preparing all flesh, all peoples. That's the blank. He prepared all flesh for the salvation of God. That's the high point of this quote, this, this final Old Testament prophet, this final one who would come and speak to Israel, who would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. This one would be preparing not just for a national savior, for a savior for all flesh. And friend, if you're here this morning, there is a savior for all people. There is a savior for you and for me, for people who live in Norwalk and Indianola, Canada, everywhere. All flesh. There is a savior. The salvation of God is here to be seen. All flesh is invited to come and see the salvation of God. And God simply calls that we come Repentant, that we come humbly. We come recognizing our bankruptcy, recognizing our need, recognizing that all of your and my best deeds are like filthy garments, recognizing that we are thoroughly through and through corrupt. We are not good people who sometimes do bad things, but we were born bad people. We are bad people by practice. My heart daily desires and craves things that God hates. That's speaking as a redeemed person the very center of my being, there's a part of me still that hates God and his rule. And that's the part of me that Christ is calling to kill daily. The very heart of my being, the very heart of your being, you were born into this world with a part alienated from God, resenting, resisting his rule. That is the part that Christ, the gospel, and the scriptures are calling us to renounce. Will you let God kill that? Yes, you you have no power to do it yourself, but would you like to be freed from it? Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Do you want rest? It's freely offered in the crucified Son of God. It's a salvation not just for Israel, but for all peoples. And we're going to stop our study here this morning. Um, If you have any questions, please talk to me or one of the elders. We'd love to help clarify this. You can check the sermons. They're online. You can grab a copy of this document. It's out in the foyer. Let's close in prayer, and we'll meet again in 20 minutes for our quarterly meeting. Lord God, we just thank you for sending a salvation, not just for a small group of people, but you have sent a salvation for all flesh, for the whole world. And Lord, we know that this news, this call to repentance, can seem hard and strong, but we know ultimately it's the words of comfort and life, because... If we will humble ourselves, if we will recognize our sinfulness, you will not crush us. You will welcome us. You will not chastise us, but you will draw us near. 
because you crushed not us, but your son, because you chastised not us, but your son. So Lord, give us the faith. Give us, grant to us the repentance to turn to you with eyes of faith and be saved and have life and receive freely the salvation that you offer. Oh, Lord God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Turn our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.